4: Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday morning. Three days to go until the 45th President of the United States makes way for the 46th President of the United States, Joe Biden, who's taking office under circumstances not seen since the time of the Civil War. From the challenges of Inauguration Day and far beyond, as John Dickerson will report.
5: Joe Biden is about to take the stage while history is still hot. The insurrection to deny him the presidency and America a peaceful transfer of power has been beaten back. But our jittery nation faces a fragile future.
6: It looks dark now, but on inaugural day, there is this sense of possibility. And at that moment, leadership can make a real difference.
5: Ahead on Sunday morning, the task for Joe Biden and America.
4: Wednesday is also the day we start addressing Kamala Harris as Madam Vice President, a change that's the culmination of all she's worked for, as we discussed when I paid her a visit a few days ago.
7: While I may be the first woman in this office, I will not be the last.
4: An unprecedented vice president for unprecedented times. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden will be sworn into office on Wednesday, facing immense challenges. Is Kamala Harris ready?
7: I eat no for breakfast.
4: (laughs) Plus, we'll meet the man who'll be by her side.
7: There was a whole conversation about, mostly among his friends, whether he should just be called the first dude. (laughs) first dude. And
8: other, other names that I can't repeat on national television.
4: Coming up, the first woman to be vice president. And the first, second gentleman. David Martin has been monitoring security preparations ahead of the inauguration. Plus, Mo Rocca with the story of America's first Native American vice president, Steve Hartman, and more. It's Sunday morning, the 17th of January, 2021. We'll be right back. From 45 to 46... The torch is passed to President-elect Joe Biden just three days from now. A torch that's at least as much a burden as source of light, given all the challenges the new president will face. Here's John Dickerson of 60 Minutes.
5: When Joe Biden raises his hand to take the oath of office, he will replace a president better known for raising his fist. At his inauguration and on January 6th, Biden will soon stand on the same steps that his predecessor turned into a crime scene. Capitol halls, once filled with school children in backpacks, are now filled with the bivouac, bunting replaced by barbed wire, parades with plywood. No amount of American flags will be able to cleanse the memory of its use in the attack.
9: I think the sense that many Americans have had since the beginning of the pandemic that we are living through uh, an unprecedented crisis, has, has really exploded into something e- even bigger.
5: Jill Lepore uses the word unprecedented carefully. Author of a sweeping account of America, she has the historian's slow pulse, but she says the word fits our times.
9: So I think a comparison would be 9-11, which in many ways is a very different political moment and an entirely different instance of, of violence. You know, It was essentially an act of war, But I think at that time, Americans understood that something profoundly had changed. I I think we will remember the 6th of January in in that same way, that it is a day when everything changed, when the unthinkable became possible in the United States.
10: It was, uh, at least by one reading, the president uh, inciting uh, a mob to go after the legislature.
5: Jamel Bowie is a columnist for The New
10: York Times. Even with the president out of office very soon, It'll still be a crisis, not because he's there, but because we have learned something about the political system. We have learned something about what is possible and what at least some faction of American voters and American lawmakers believe about the nature of our democracy, which is that if they cannot win, then the person who does or the party that does isn't legitimate. I was just reading a bunch of old Lincoln speeches And I got to the house divided speech and, you know, like contemporary discussion of that or in popular discussion, house divided usually refers to sort of political division. But the the literal metaphor was a house cannot stand that way. It must be one thing or it must be the other thing.
5: Right. The, The house divided speech is not now let's all come together. It's one side has to win this argument.
10: Right, right. And there's no, there's no alternative over, the, over a, a long time horizon in which we can have a faction of Americans who look at the Capitol attack and see that as something to emulate or something to repeat or something that's, that's laudatory. Like that, that cannot coexist with uh, constitutional government as we understand it.
6: We have a politics uh, that is very much viewed as a team sport right now. The greatest problem is giving aid and comfort to the other side. And uh, instead of, you know, talking across those differences.
5: Washington Post columnist Michael Gerson was the lead writer of George W. Bush's first inaugural address.
11: The President of the United
12: States, George W. Bush.
5: The address came after the bitter 2000 election, which had been decided by the Supreme Court.
12: America
13: has never been united by blood or birth or soil. We are bound by ideals that move us beyond our backgrounds, lift us above our interests, and teach us what it means to be citizens.
6: I went back and read the speech, you know, just recently, and I found myself choking up, not just because of the words, but because that was a realistic prospect at that moment, that we could have national healing based on shared national values. My concern right now is, is that a naive approach? You know, is the assertion of of common values going to be accepted by a country that has different, lives in different cultures um, and ways of life?
5: The problem, says Gerson, is that President Trump and the Republican Party have inflamed politics to such a temperature that
6: it can't be lowered. Well, I, I do think... That apocalyptic language is one of the worst problems in our politics, this view that if you lose, that the country is lost. That is a way to motivate turnout. It is also a way to destroy the institutions of the country.
5: President, President Trump's apocalyptic theater with himself as the protector of Christianity played out last summer on the very spot where Joe Biden will start his inaugural day, St. John's Church, just steps from the White House. Historian Jill Lapore.
9: Politics needs to be supple. There needs to be give and take. You have to be able to tolerate the political opinions of your political opponents. They have to be legitimate opinions. They can't be heresies. And that merging of religion and politics over the course of the 20th century, uh, we, you know, we see the cost of that now.
5: In 1801, after one of America's ugliest political campaigns, Thomas Jefferson sought to turn down the flame. Every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle, he said in his inaugural address, promising stability because error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it. But is reason still up to the task?
9: If you attack the institutions that produce and diffuse knowledge— if you attack them as having no knowledge, you, you kind of get to this moment where you have undermined the very idea that there is such a thing as knowledge.
5: The new Biden administration may benefit by simply offering a steady stream of dry, basic information, potentially reviving the long-forgotten slow news day.
9: You actually just have to show up, have actual information, bring people in who are doing their jobs, and answer the questions that the press and the public have.
5: Just the facts, ma'am, governing
9: Yeah, that's what I think. I do do actually think that goes pretty far.
5: The harder task for the incoming administration will be speaking to the voters who fear it. Speechwriter Michael Gerson.
6: I think that that's going to be his main task in this inaugural, is to to speak to Americans who don't feel even related to this experiment anymore and tell them they have a stake and that they're valued in this system. I think you have to allow room for people that have supported Trump over the years to find a different way of doing politics. You know, you can't dismiss them as forever tainted. Rhetoric can do a lot to try to create the space for sanity. And that's, I think, what they should be looking for right now, is a way to give a refuge, a rhetorical refuge, for those who want to serve the country.
5: Joe Biden will be inaugurated on the scar of insurrection, but the wound at the Capitol will be at his back. In front, the road to convalescence, found in the millions who marched, rallied, and voted peacefully, and the officials who protected the vote. They joined a weary army already keeping the faith, first responders and our neighbors carrying us through the pandemic. Inaugurations are a grand reopening of the American experiment where hope lies not in those who broke with its standards, but those who, while feeling broken, upheld those standards.
4: Security for Wednesday's inauguration is ramping up in the face of unprecedented warnings of violence. David Martin is tracking the preparations.
14: The nation's capital is an armed camp. Police, Secret Service, FBI everywhere backed by a staggering number of National Guard troops under the command of Major General William Walker.
15: to have 25,000 guardsmen here to support the federal law enforcement should tell everybody that we're prepared for pretty much anything.
14: 25,000 troops, many of them armed. That compares with 340 unarmed guardsmen on duty when the Capitol was stormed and 9,500 at Barack Obama's first inauguration. But here's the most telling comparison. 25,000 is five times the number of troops in Iraq and Afghanistan.
16: Since 9-11, we've been focused on the threat of Islamist terror, which is still a threat, but we need to recognize that in this country, the challenge we have is one of homegrown terror.
14: Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, says the wave of arrests that followed the storming of the Capitol will not stop the protests.
16: For them, the arrests are like a kind of martyrdom. They see it as a necessary step and they're able to glorify themselves even when they're detained in this way.
14: It's taking place on social media, the same place terrorist groups like ISIS got their start. What are you seeing on social media?
17: We're seeing the same thing the FBI is seeing, which is um, all the lights blinking red. Uh, A number of different extremist groups all coalescing around this idea of coming to the Capitol on on January 20th.
14: Seamus Hughes of Georgetown University says many of them don't care. They have almost no chance of stopping the inauguration.
17: There's a subset of extremists there that just want to watch the world burn. And the fact that the National Guard is sleeping at the Capitol, um, it's getting to what they want to get to, uh, which is uh, dividing this country.
14: Troops marshaling at the National Guard Armory will be all over the city. Extremists can ignore the facts that Joe Biden won the election, but armed soldiers are not so easily dismissed. When are they allowed to use lethal force?
15: They're allowed to protect themselves and come to the aid of others to protect others. That's all.
14: We saw what happened at the Capitol. With that situation in which police were being overrun, does that justify the use of lethal force? No, sir. So you could allow a crowd to storm the Capitol and take over?
15: No, sir. I have a right to protect myself. So if you pull out a weapon on me at, and you point it at me, and I'm convinced you, you're going to try to kill me, I have the right to defend myself.
14: Some of the extremists who stormed the Capitol once had or still have ties to the military, which is why the Joint Chiefs of Staff put out this extraordinary message to all the troops reminding them Joe Biden is about to become their commander-in-chief. To make sure that nobody had a question, Dave. General Dan Hokinson, head of the National Guard Bureau, is a member of the Joint Chiefs. Are you worried at all about the reliability of your National Guard troops? Absolutely not. Have you been screening some of the troops as they come in?
16: Uh, yes, sir. In coordination with the Secret Service and the FBI, they're screening all the personnel that are coming in. As the National Guard has rolled in, now we're seeing The extremists focus on targets outside of Washington, D.C. It's nothing short of a potentially violent armed insurgency.
14: 25,000 troops manning barbed wire top fences can protect the inauguration. But can they stem the tide of extremism?
16: This isn't the end. This is just the end of the beginning. And I
15: think it's entering a whole new and potentially very frightening phase. This is what we all sign up for to help protect America from all enemies, foreign and domestic.
14: But this week it'll be domestic.
15: Yes, sir, all enemies, foreign and domestic. That's the oath to the Constitution.
4: President Trump has been pretty quiet this past week, mostly because he's lost his ability to use social media, a decision that sparked plenty of controversy, as Lee Cowan explains.
11: A decade ago, This very month, in Cairo's Tahrir Square, social media was being praised. Its role as an organizing tool during those pro-democracy rallies had many calling the Arab Spring the Facebook revolution instead. But for all its glowing promise, we quickly learned that social media is only as good
17: as how it's used. The major difference between now and then is more than ever before, our experiences on social media are determined by hidden decisions made by the social media companies themselves. That's what's changed. That's what's changed. Ramesh Srinivasan was in Cairo back then, researching how Twitter and Facebook were giving voice to the voiceless. It used to be something more of an open pipe.
11: He's now an author and professor at UCLA's Department of Information
17: Studies. What we are seeing when we go online is likely to be that which is most sensational or inflammatory. They're predicting whatever is most likely to grab people's attention.
11: Keeping us engaged on social media is how big tech makes money. And the past four years have proven that lies and conspiracy theories are unfortunately more engaging
17: than the truth. And the danger in that is what? The danger is it's going to present us with an extremely distorted view of reality. The fringe becomes the new normal. You're fired. That is a study in the Trump presidency.
11: His reality TV roots taught him controversy gets ratings, and he used his social media feeds in much the same way. No one has a bigger bully pulpit than the president of the United States, and no one before Mr. Trump used it with such abandon online. The attack on the Capitol changed all that. After years of defending his presence on their platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and other social media giants booted Mr. Trump, claiming he incited a riot. Amazon removed an entire site from its servers, Parlor, which had become the place favored by many conservatives. Deplatformed was a word we learned a lot about this past week. I think big
14: tech has made a terrible mistake And very, very bad for our country. They shouldn't be doing it. But uh, there's always a counter move when they do that.
11: While many applauded the move, the precedent of shutting out the leader of the free world made many people uncomfortable, too. It's a huge power to wield, one that is currently held in the hands of a very few. It's not a new argument. The CEOs of the major tech companies have been called on the carpet before. Who the hell elected you and put you in charge of what
0: the media are allowed to report and what the American people are allowed to hear?
2: So you won't take down lies or you will take down lies? I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no.
11: But claiming big tech is running afoul of the First Amendment by deplatforming those it deems harmful may be missing the larger point. Is kicking someone off any of these social media platforms uh, an infringement of their free speech rights.
1: No, it isn't. They're not subject to the First Amendment. They are not the government.
11: Daphne Keller directs the program on platform regulation at Stanford Cyber Policy Center. When it comes to digital speech and the First Amendment, she says, it gets messy pretty fast. This isn't just a free speech argument on the part of users, it's also a free speech argument on the part of the providers as well, right?
1: People who want to sue platforms and force them to carry speech they don't want to have a double First Amendment problem. You know, first of all, those people don't have a First Amendment claim against the platforms. And second of all, the platforms do have a First Amendment argument against being forced to carry speech they disagree with.
11: But what if the argument over regulation was reframed, less about speech, and more about changing how big tech exposes us to that speech?
2: This idea that it's just this free flow of information is false. It's a curated flow of information.
11: Yael Eisenstadt used to work for Facebook as one of the heads of election integrity, where she saw firsthand just what these companies do
2: with all that content. It's a business model that is predicated on gathering as much of our human behavioral data as possible to create these little boxes of who we are to then target us with ads.
11: That's all fine if we're shopping for sneakers, she says. But those same algorithms apply to our politics, too. We'll willingly follow ideas that pop up right down the rabbit hole. And those who want their messages to spread know the more controversial, the better.
2: I don't think that Mark Zuckerberg set out with the idea that I want to create a platform where the most outrageous, salacious, hate-filled speech wins. I, I don't think that was his goal. But instead of holding the platform responsible for what somebody posts, it's the tools that I want them held responsible for, not the actual speech on the platform, except for, of course, if the speech breaks the law.
11: But it sounds like what you're saying, though, is that would be, that'd be changing the business model pretty much. 100%. Big tech has promised more transparency and better enforcement of their own rules when it comes to spreading dis and misinformation. Facebook removed more hate speech this year than ever before. Twitter the same. Even TikTok is being more proactive. But that will likely not be enough going forward. But Can we trust them to do this kind of regulation
17: on their own, though? No, we should not be trusting Twitter or any private company to magically serve the public interest. I think if anything, the last four years have taught us uh, that we can't do that.
11: A year before the end of his second term, Bill Clinton talked about the challenges of regulating the Internet. That's sort of like trying to nail Jello to the wall. That was over two decades ago.
17: Times change, but the value of good stewardship doesn't. This discussion is about how we want to live, how we want to be as a country and as a people. It's a discussion about our humanity at the end of the day. I do believe that you can force people to tie their actions to beliefs that might be a little more virtuous than their mere bottom lines.
4: Kamala Harris marks multiple firsts when she takes office as vice president. But Mo Rocca tells us about another vice president and another first.
13: Just two blocks away from the Kansas state capitol in Topeka, you'll find a stately brick home with two domes.
2: My mom loved the house. It's probably one of the prettiest houses in Topeka.
13: Nova and Don Cottrell purchased the local landmark in
2: 1993. It hadn't been well cared for. It needed a lot of work.
13: Although the couple was retired, says their daughter Patty Dannenberg, they spent the next 25 years painstakingly restoring the home's parquet flooring and gleaming chandeliers. And I love stained glass.
2: It has beautiful stained glass
13: eventually opening it to the public as a museum dedicated to the man who once lived there, Charles Curtis.
2: I don't think many people around really knew much about him or realized how remarkable he was.
13: Remarkable indeed. 92 years ago, Charles Curtis was inaugurated as America's first and only Native American vice president. Curtis was a member of the CAW, also called Kansa Nation. The Kaw people are the indigenous people of Kansas. James Pepper Henry is CEO of the First Americans Museum, slated to open in September in Oklahoma City, and vice chairman of the Kaw Nation.
18: I would say 99% of everyone in this country does not realize the state of Kansas takes its name from our
13: people, the Kaw people. Charles Curtis was born in 1860 in what was then the Kansas Territory to a white father and an Indian mother. His mother died when he was just three, and he was left in the care of his Indian grandmother.
2: He lived with the Kaw people on, on the reservation.
13: Pauline Sharp is a member of the Kaw Nation.
2: He learned how to ride horses, he could speak the language.
13: By 1873, the Kaw Nation, once millions of acres in area, had dwindled to little more than a burial plot. And the few hundred surviving members were being forcibly relocated south to what would become Oklahoma.
2: They walked to their new home in Indian Territory. Took them 17 days. People got sick. There was typhoid, even starvation.
13: 13-year-old Charles expected to join the migration. But his Indian grandmother commanded the boy to stay in Topeka with his white grandmother and assimilate.
18: She wanted the best for him, and the best for him was to go live with his white family. And it turns out his grandmother was right.
13: Had he gone with her, would we be talking about him today?
18: We wouldn't know who Charles Curtis was had he gone with his native grandmother
13: to Oklahoma. In fact, he may not have even have survived. Instead, Curtis thrived. He became a successful lawyer and was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Do you think having to go between worlds sort of trained him for politics in a sense?
18: I think that's true. I think uh, being a mixed-blooded person and in some ways being an ambassador between two worlds did prepare him for politics,
13: American politics. In the Senate, Curtis, a Republican, became a force, serving as majority leader. An advocate for women's rights, Curtis proposed the very first version of the Equal Rights Amendment. Women have always
18: had leadership roles within our tribe and been really the backbone and strength of our
13: tribe. I'm guessing that might have been a factor in clearly his belief on this issue.
18: Well, knowing my native grandmother, I know his native grandmother had a strong influence
13: on him and certainly mine did. But for Native Americans, the legacy of the man known as Indian Charlie is decidedly mixed. Many of the assimilationist policies he backed had ultimately devastating effects on the lives of Indians, leading to the dissolution of tribal governments and the breakup of communal lands. I think he believed he was doing the right thing.
18: Had he been alive today, I think he would have understood that some of the things that he believed in at that time did have a significant negative impact on Native peoples.
13: In 1928, Curtis, running with Herbert Hoover, was elected the 31st Vice President of the United States. He was given little to do in the office.
14: I proclaim open the Olympic Games of Los Angeles. Though
13: he did preside over the opening of the 1932 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. But with the onset of the Great Depression, the ticket's bid for re-election went down in flames. After Curtis's death in 1936, his name quickly faded. As for his former home in Topeka, Don and Nova Cottrell died last year, months apart. The house is now for sale. Patty Dannenberg hopes that whoever buys the Curtis home will preserve it. What would be lost if the house weren't there?
2: I think a lot of history would be lost.
13: And as for the Caw Nation, they've rebounded in number and in 2002, purchased acreage for a memorial park in Kansas, a return to their ancestral land.
2: We danced on our own land in Kansas for the first time in 142 years. How did that feel? It felt wonderful to be back home.
13: How would you like Charles Curtis to be remembered?
2: That's a hard one. As the first Native American to make it that high in the United States government, that's a source of pride for us. And um, I want people to remember him, I think, in a good way.
3: Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side, you know, the side your mom gave you, and shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. As an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
4: Donald Trump now stands as the first president to be impeached twice. Rita Braver looks at how we got here and what comes
19: next. The atmosphere on the House floor was tense. He must go. No. As he members exactly argued over whether President Trump should be impeached. This is a moment of truth, my friends. For his role in the assault on the United States Capitol. Everybody
5: stay down. Get
19: down. If inciting a deadly insurrection is not enough to get a
14: president impeached. Then what is?
5: The president didn't even mention violence last Wednesday, much less provoke or incite it. You have created a mockery out of the impeachment process.
19: Only four times in American history has Congress impeached a president. 1868, Andrew Johnson for breaking a law that barred him from firing his secretary of war. 1998, Bill Clinton for lying under oath about his relationship with intern Monica Lewinsky. Article one is adopted. 2019, Donald Trump the first time for abuse of power. 2021, Mr. Trump once again. Where do you think this impeachment will go down in history in terms of the seriousness of the offense?
14: This impeachment levels the most egregious charge ever made against a U.S. president. Summoning a mob
19: to the Capitol and then inciting that mob to commit insurrection. And history professor Alan Lichtman of American University says the vote in favor of impeachment was stunning because 10 members of the president's own party, the most of any impeachment in history, voted yes. One of them was Jamie Herrera
2: Butler of Washington state. My vote to impeach our sitting president is not a fear-based decision. I am not choosing a side, I'm choosing truth.
19: Was this a matter of conscience for you?
2: To me, it was an issue of when when I'm a grandma, can I look at this dispassionately and say to myself, I believe in the stance I took. And I can tell you right now, I know that I will. Do you think you're going to lose your seat over this? I don't know. I knew that by taking the vote, it would put it all into question.
19: Now it's up to the United States Senate to decide whether to convict President Trump. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will not start a trial before the inauguration when Democrats take control of the Senate. Some experts argue it's unconstitutional to try a president after he's left office. But others, like Rice University history professor Douglas Brinkley, say it is allowed. So if Trump were to be convicted, would he automatically be barred from holding public office again?
16: No. The first um, article of impeachment for inciting riot, it would need to have two-thirds of the U.S. Senate to agree. And if they did that... There would be a second vote to bar him forever from entering American government in any way, shape, or form. And that only needs
17: 50%.
19: But many Republicans argue that it is divisive and a waste of time to go after someone who is out the door anyway.
17: It is now
11: time for all of us, Democrats and Republicans alike, to turn down the temperature.
19: Doesn't it make sense on some levels to just say, okay, it's done, it's over.
14: It's very important to take a moral stance against this.
19: But whatever happens to President Trump, there is still the question of healing the rift in a deeply divided country. How do you think this period is going to stack up in history?
16: I think it's second only to the Civil War in the
19: sense of watching our country so disunited. Still, Jamie Herrera Butler believes that the impeachment process proves our
2: democracy is still strong. I can vote my conscience on the House floor and impeach the most powerful man in the world, not because I want to, um, but because I felt like I had to. And the government didn't just throw me in jail. It's working before our eyes.
4: On to Steve Hartman. And the story of how youth can bring sunlight to the elderly living in shadows.
12: Whoa! 91-year-old Gene McGee couldn't believe his good fortune. Oh, look. When he stepped outside his house in Vidalia, Louisiana this past week, Look at that. he discovered a bunch of kids from the daycare across the street.
9: Trying to get that ball from him.
12: Willing and wanting to include him in their fun. Hey there. He also met the daycare teacher. What's your name? Megan Nunez.
9: Every day I cross the street and we meet again. And your name? It's Megan.
12: Meet again. Megan. Every day. Megan. For three years now, Megan. Gene has been meeting Megan, Megan. for what yeah. he thinks to be the very first time.
19: My name is Gene. You Gene, Mr. Gene. Yeah. Now who was that?
12: Gene has severe dementia. Well, He can barely remember yeah. his own face. I
10: don't know who that is. That's you.
12: His daughter, Kathy, says he also suffered from loneliness, until those daycare kids came into his life.
19: Here, Mr. Gene. Oh, my goodness. They have been such a blessing to daddy, and he lights up.
12: For about an hour, every afternoon, Gene and the kids bask in each other's company. And although the night will erase every memory of the day, and a fog will smother every echo of laughter, something will remain in the recesses of his mind something will beckon him back whenever he hears the children playing he just goes right to the front yard and he remembers that this is going to be a joyful thing
19: exactly if he
12: goes outside
19: yeah yeah
12: which is kind of inexplicable
19: because it's love and you know everybody responds to love how are you doing? I'm good.
12: Megan says it's almost like an instinct.
19: I'm Gene. We always tell the
9: kids that his brain is kind of sick, but his heart always remembers us.
4: Mr. Gene.
12: Dementia can rob so much, but apparently acceptance what and compassion.
4: You? What's your best move?
12: Are unforgettable.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Just three days from now, Kamala Harris becomes Madam Vice President. No thanks to those who may have tried to discourage her during her long career climb. As she told me during our visit last week.
7: I was raised to not hear no, let me be clear about it. So it wasn't like, oh, the possibilities are immense. Whatever you want to do, you can do. No, I was raised (laughs) to understand many people will tell you it is impossible, but don't listen. I mentor a lot of people and I tell them that there will be people who will say, it's not your turn, it's not your time, no one like you has done it. And I'll tell them, and don't you listen. And then I will go on to tell them, I eat no for breakfast.
4: (laughs) There have been 48 vice presidents in the history of the United States, all of them men, until now. In three days, Kamala Harris will become the first woman to be vice president. Also the first black vice president and the first of South Asian ancestry. Are you excited about January 20th? I'm not gonna let anyone take my excitement from me. <laughs> but she and president elect Joe Biden come into office during some of the most troubled times our nation has ever faced. Ready. The pandemic, an economic crisis yes, oh, and division made violently clear in the takeover of the Capitol on January 6th. Biden and Harris will be sworn in, surrounded by unprecedented security. What are you anticipating on January 20th? when as a news person, I'm already seeing split screen coverage of the 50 state capitol domes, where reports are that extremists are planning to be back here in mm-hmm. D.C. This is going to be...
7: This will be an inaugural like no other, in large part because of COVID. But- We are going to get sworn in, and we're going to do the job we were hired to do. And that means focusing, for example, on getting people vaccinated. We want to get $100 done in the first 100 days. It's going to be very tough to do it. We're going to reopen the schools in a safe way. We have to get to the job of healing America.
14: I represent all of you, whether you voted for me or against me.
7: That was a mantra for Biden and Harris. But the
4: challenge they faced was laid bare by the attack on Congress, exactly two weeks before Inauguration Day. January 6th was something seismic. Yes, it was. Something seismic happened. Yes, it happened. was. May I ask, was the TV on? Did someone say, "Madam Vice President-Elect, you got to see this, come? How did that unfold? I
7: was at the Capitol that morning, and then I was um, in a meeting, and I was told that I should leave. And then I was taken to a secure location with my husband. We watched in horror. You are absolutely right. It was seismic. It was an inflection moment. You know, sometimes we think an inflection moment is the bringing of something that is positive. No, it was, a, in many ways, a reckoning. It was an exposure of the vulnerability of our democracy.
4: In a Senate now split, between Democrats and Republicans, as Vice President, Harris will cast tie-breaking votes. A split Senate has only happened three times before. This one comes after two Democratic Senate victories in the Georgia runoff elections, just a day before the Capitol takeover. Still, the obstacles to the incoming administration's long to-do list are enormous. How can you look at that agenda without looking at it through the veil of what we saw on January 6th? When we saw, how did Walt Kelly put it in Pogo? We've seen the enemy, and it is us. us. And And it 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 is is us. us. And that is true no matter which side you were on. But, Jane,
7: this is not new. It is outrageous. And we will remember it like we have remembered some of the most significant December 7th. We will remember January 6th. There are certain things we are always going to remember as an attack on the foundations and and, and the fundamental principles and ideals which we hold dear. Yes, I agree with you in that regard. But come on. People walking around carrying the Confederate flag? This is not a new display. We've seen this. We saw this over the course of the last four years, and we've seen it in our history, and the world's history before.
4: It might seem that Kamala Harris was born for this moment in history. Her father, Donald Harris, a Jamaica-born economist. Her mother, Shyamala Gopalan, a scientist from India. They met at the University of California at Berkeley. They divorced when Harris was seven, leaving
7: her and her younger sister Maya to be raised primarily by their mother. She raised us to be proud, strong black women, and she raised us to know and be proud of our Indian heritage. She emphasized your black identity. She was very deliberate about it. I mean, my mother arrived in the United States at the age of 19 because she had a dream and a goal to end cancer. She wanted to be a scientist and automatically, in the midst of those turbulent times, became very attracted to the civil rights movement. She was very active in the civil rights movement in the 60s and beyond. And she was acutely aware that she was raising her two daughters in an America where we would very likely be treated and approached based on our race and our gender. And so my mother raised her two daughters to be very proud black women. Growing up, my sister and I had to deal with the neighbor who told us her parents couldn't play with us because, she, because we were black.
4: Harris was and bused also, to integrated schools in Berkeley.
7: You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. She
4: later attended Howard, a historically black university earned a law degree at the University of California Hastings College of the Law and set off on a path to politics. You've been the first everything you've ever been, district attorney, attorney general of California, first, 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 now first black woman, first South Asian woman.
7: First woman. First
4: woman. (laughs) With belief in the power of government, and yet, as someone who prosecuted, excuse me, sex crimes, Yeah. You knew those children, those teenage victims that you Mm -hmm. defended as a prosecutor, that you really couldn't change a great deal. How much do you expect in your first four years in the Biden-Harris administration? Is a generation gonna be enough?
7: Let me tell you, I, at the risk of sounding um, like an idealist, I used to have this debate with my mother And say, oh, mommy, you're a pessimist. And she'd say, you're an idealist. And then I'd say, no, I'm an optimist. And she'd say, well, I'm a realist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I exist in the spectrum between being an optimist and a realist. I've seen some of the worst of human behavior, to your point. I was a career prosecutor for a large part of my career prosecuting child sexual assault cases. I've seen some awful stuff. And I've seen some beautiful great things and so that's where i exist and i'm clear-eyed joe is certainly clear-eyed we've got a big job in front of us and it is not going to be easy
4: an agenda further complicated by this past week's impeachment joe biden and his vice president have elected not to weigh in on the next step in that process In February, will we still be talking about Donald Trump's presidency through the impeachment process? Let me be
7: very clear about my position on Donald Trump. I strongly believe that he is incapable of being president of the United States, that he has been incompetent, and that's why I ran against him, and that's why Joe ran against him. (laughs) So this is not a statement about Donald Trump. But the American people deserve that in their president and vice president coming into office, that we address the things that are weighing on them um, and and implement a plan. And that's what we're going to do. It's not to the exclusion of many other things that need to be addressed around accountability, but that's our focus.
4: When Kamala Harris takes office on Wednesday, there will be yet another first. Can I meet Doug? Yes, (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Where's my Douglas? And we'll meet the nation's first second gentleman when we come back. We just spent time one-on-one with Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Time to meet her significant other. I don't know, do I do I call you Doug? How do I address you?
8: You can call me Doug.
4: Okay, Doug, Doug. But of course, he isn't just Doug. Doug Emhoff will be making history as the first husband of a vice president. First gentleman, first gentleman. Second
8: gentleman. First, second gentleman.
4: Okay, I'm afraid for the next week or month or year of your life, you're going to be doing something like you just had to do with me.
7: Yeah, it's all good. So second gentleman, it is. There was a whole conversation about, mostly among his friends, whether yes. he should just be called the first dude. The first dude. And
8: other, other names that I can't repeat on national television.
7: Harrison
4: Amhoff met in 2013, a blind date set up by a friend of hers. When you first got the friend who said, there's a guy, maybe your friends were doing this to you all the time, but there's a guy, and he's a good one, and um, don't Google him. Yeah. You totally Googled him, didn't you? Uh,
1: Ooh,
8: this is a reveal.
7: I've never been asked that. I did. (laughs) Kentucky. Wow, okay. Oh, that's so funny you asked me that question. So, yes, my best friend set us up on a blind date, and she said, just trust me, just trust me, just just don't even, you know, she wanted me to just kind of go into it, and she said, don't Google him. I did.
4: (laughs) She found out he was a Los Angeles lawyer. Of course, he knew she was California Attorney General. He made the first move.
8: One of my buddies was in town, and we went to the Laker game. And so, you know, we had a couple of beers. I told him the story. I said, what do you think? I said, text her. So we (laughs) sat there in the stands and came up with this text, which was something like, hey, it's Doug. (laughs) Awkward. (laughs) I'm texting you. And you she guys said, composed
7: it together? "We did." Yeah. So
8: that's my reveal. And she, which is funny, she said something like, "Yay, Lakers! Go Lakers!" And, and I, biggest fan. Warriors fan out there. So, the
4: next morning, early, he called.
8: Be. So I left this ridiculous voicemail, which she has saved, and plays back to me on our anniversary every year. I thought I'd never hear from her again, yeah. but.
7: But it was just he. It was adorable and it was just i mean the thing about doug is that he is exactly who he is he's just fully authentic and clear about the things he cares about and it's family it's his work um, you and me they married in
4: 2014 her first he was by her side as she was elected to the u.s senate where he found out what it's like to be a plus one to a powerful politician
8: There were Senate spouses who welcomed me and I went to some you know lunches and, and plenty of misters. Amy Klobuchar's husband, Elizabeth Warren's husband who kind of put their you know arms around me to there, show, there me, show me the ropes few, and uh,
7: There are very few husbands that are Senate yeah. spouses and they, they do find each other. Emhoff
4: plans to teach law classes at Georgetown University. Much like the incoming first lady, Jill Biden, who plans to continue as a community college professor. You strike me as a very centered person (laughs) and a calming presence.
8: Thank you. I understand the role she's taking and the role that that Joe and and Jill are taking on, too, and become very close with them. So, like, I support her, I support them, and that's important because Mm -hmm. what they're doing is, is so much and they're walking into so many different crises. And the American people you know, hired them for a change and to get us out of these things. And I'm going to do everything I can to help them.
4: And to relieve the stress of the Washington pressure cooker, a couple hopes I'll to try. keep cooking. You're both kitchen people, you cook. Yeah.
8: Well, well, well
7: he's, she, he has learned.
8: Yeah, no. She's she, a she good was, sous
7: chef, except now, he, yeah, yeah. At he, a
8: necessity during COVID and,
7: and COVID, really. Well, how much cooking will there be in your life to come? Well, I am charting that course and making sure that at least for Sunday family dinner, it's too too much a part of our family life, and that's important to me to keep that stability.
4: And we had to ask about that fashion choice, surely a first for a vice president, the Converse Chuck Taylor sneakers, the Chucks. I got to tell you when you walked in I checked out is she wearing them <laughs> You're not wearing your Chucks today No What is the story
7: It became a story I've always worn Chucks
9: it It's old. my What's casual the story with It's the my always... casual
7: go to you know grew up with Chucks I just love them they're comfortable
8: I can attest there is a, several closets full of them.
7: He's uh, exaggerating. Uh-huh. But, uh,
8: there is, yeah, this wasn't just something that she started doing on the campaign. And when I met her, it was Je- Chucks and Jeans, when she met the kids. And what
4: it, did it say to you?
8: She's down to earth. People ask me all the time, like, what she really like? I said, she's shockingly normal. I think that is really an extension of who she really is.
4: Harris and Emhoff have blended their families together, including children Ella and Cole from his first marriage. Hi,
19: hi, hi. hi Kaya, hi, Pam, hi, hi. hi. Alex, oh, hi, you?
2: V-
4: their Sunday evening Zoom calls are a striking picture of diversity.
7: Is Dad still in hair and
1: makeup right now? <laughs> exactly.
7: We have family in Italy. My sister-in-law married an Italian. So they live there with their two children. India. We India. We have an aunt and an uncle there. Over Salachiti's left shoulder is my <laughs> grandmother. Canada.
8: California. Brooklyn. Brooklyn. <laughs> From Brooklyn. Oakland. Uh, my parents. My parents. They live in the desert, <laughs> out in California.
4: And for the next four years, add the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington to the list, which will be home to the Vice President and her family.
8: It reflects America, and that's Mm -hmm. what it should be. It should just be about love and unity.
4: Well, well, bless your family and stay safe and well. Thank you. you, you too. Thank you.
8: Thank you.
16: It's too early to tell if Americans are really ready to start spending money
14: again.
4: We pause to note the passing of longtime CBS News economics correspondent Ray Brady.
14: Today's unemployment figures are-
4: Ray was part of our original Sunday morning team alongside Charles Carroll recapping the weekend
16: business If you slow up the economy enough to affect inflation then unemployment rises
4: He was a presence on other broadcasts too including his money crunch reports on the CBS evening news back in the 90s
16: Do your job but watch out for number 1
4: An Emmy Award winner, Ray retired in 2000 after 28 years with CBS. Ray Brady died this past Tuesday. He was 94. And on a happier note, congratulations to our Sunday Morning London producer, Michaela Bufano, the proud mother of the newest member of our Sunday Morning family, Gianna Florence Gow. Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning.
0: If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music.